Please be seated. Well, I've, as we prepared for this sermon this week, I only had one person who tell me, told me that I was a little bit crazy for taking on this topic today. But let me start with this today by saying just a couple bits of uh, information. Some of the data that I've seen at preparing for this um, says that 16% of Americans will face depression during their lifetime. They say that something on the order of about 6%, depending on which study you look at, something like 6% of Americans will face depression during this year. And um, a survey that was done in the last decade, a survey of church leaders said this, that only 12.5% of church leaders think that churches deal with this topic well. So... I want to start by just saying I may be weak on this, but at least I'm willing to speak into this topic today as we take up and look at this whole topic of depression and dark places and how to minister to a friend that's going into that place. We're doing this as part of a sermon series that we started last week. The sermon series is entitled How to Help a Friend in Hard Times. And this is a sermon series that we planned over a year ago that's falling now and seems to me to have particular relevance. I saw this past week that the data is that um, the medications for anxiety being distributed in the United States are up by 35% right now as we deal with these things. And I talked to my counselor this week about this sermon in part, and um, she said that, well, like all the same conditions are there, but everything seems to be amplified. So maybe it's good timing that this was set for us to talk about a year ago. What I'd like to talk about this morning um, on a little bit longer than normal sermon is looking at two things. One, one is like this whole topic of what we do with depression in dark places and some ideas looking at scripture. And the second part really being explicit and talking about how do we help a friend in this place? And what do we do with that? And as we do that, I want to just admit and own up front that I'm not an expert in this area, but I am diligent in my study and my work on this. But um, just take that for what it's worth. And as we start looking at this, I think the very first question is to ask, what is it, what is it that we're talking about? Because the way we use that word depression, in the, as we use it in everyday life, it gets a really broad range of use, right? Some people will use it to really mean I'm a little bit down. Like, I'm a little depressed this afternoon kind of a thing. And then the other extreme all the way on the other side are people who are saying, no, I'm not able to get out of bed. I can't function. Like, there's this huge range on what what it can mean. And people look at it in different ways. I saw that one person defined it um, as depression is a matter of deep heart pain, not simply being low or a bit down. I intentionally used the title today, the subtitle today, as Depression in Dark Places because I want a big range with what we're talking about. And when we start to look at it, maybe the next question we ask is, what causes this? And to be honest, we should hold that as a bit of a mystery because there are all kinds of different factors and things that can contribute to us going to these dark places. There are all these external things that people sometimes think about. If you've experienced trauma or if you've experienced some kind of persecution, I know some people who who felt that in certain relationships, 
or all these different events that happen in life that call us grief are different things that are sort of the external factors. And then there's these internal factors like chemical imbalance, you know, or temperate vulnerability or guilt or even things like, um, I think they call it success fallibility, where you've reached the pinnacle of something and realized it was hollow. All, there are all kinds of different reasons that can tank us or make us go to dark places. We're going to talk more at the end about how you deal with friends that are in this place. But one of the things I would stop and say here is don't assume you know the reason and don't make light in thinking you know the reason. Like, don't do that. Just hold it as a mystery, right? And the, the third question I want to sort of take up before we jump into some scripture is how prevalent is this? And in preparation for today's sermon, I talked to a number of my counselor friends who work in this area, and I also talked to um, a Christian psychiatrist friend of mine. And when I was talking to him, he said, like, don't give any data. Don't do any data, because the data is going to say probably 10% of the people have it in, during their lifetime, um, but or, or, during, or any, during any given year. But right now, it's probably 100% was his answer. So maybe that's not so helpful. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of a data geek, so I can't help it. So let me just give a little bit of data about the prevalence and what happens with this. The World Health Organization says that in the world today, there are 264 million people who have depression. The World Health Organization says it is the number one cause of disability in the world is depression. So like it's this huge issue about what's going on with this. And then uh, a, a, a paper that was written in 2017 that I started with today with some of this data, 16% of Americans are going to suffer from it, 6% during the year. And to me, part of the interesting thing, and I don't know why this is, but in the last number of decades, the number of people experiencing the complete and total disabil disabil disabilitating depression has gone up. And it's also gone up among our youth and our adolescents. Right now, studies would say that 3 million adolescents in a year experience um, a deep depression episode sometime during the year. So that, that's all going on. A little bit of data. I think there are two things we might say on that. One is that whenever you talk to a friend going through this, part of it is letting them know they're not alone. This is not an uncommon thing. There are other people walking through this. And then for those of us who are thinking, like, why do I want to listen to this sermon today? The fact is, either you or somebody you know is going to go through this. So, so it's an extremely relevant topic and not just something that's academic. I think sort of the other sort of preparatory thing I'd say before we look at um, our psalm today is how important it is to utilize our professionals on this topic, right? That... Somebody that is experiencing depression should see a professional, a therapist, a social worker, a family doctor, a psychiatrist, or even in some situations, um, certain support groups. And I don't want to suggest for a minute that this sermon and the spiritual dimension of this is some kind of substitute for that, because I think that's a major source of healing and what God uses, right? So hold that. But with the data that I've just given... It's probably no surprise to look back at Scripture then with kind of thinking about these things and see that there are many biblical characters 
who go into these dark places and perhaps depression, right? We see lots of different places with this, right? And we think about Job for a minute and how he experiences such trauma and the dark, lonely, desperate places that he goes. And I'll say more about it in a few minutes when we talk about how we help friends. But notice if you go back and read the book of Job, how his friends exasperate the terrible place that he's in with their attempts to try to help him. So it takes a lot of care with what we do. We can think about other examples of biblical characters. One can think about Elijah and sort of the nervous exhaustion that he faces and the isolation that he faces. Or we think about King David and his dark places he goes when Saul's trying to pursue him and kill him. And he's in these dark caves and all the stuff he's doing and what that was like. And then later on, maybe the darkness he experiences later on in life. And again, I'm not going to say how it comes about, but maybe it's because of some of the things that he does and brings on himself. Some people would even suggest that Jesus goes to some of these dark places. We talk about Jesus experiencing the full range of humanity. And you think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying for the cup to pass, when he's got sweat that's blood and all the things he's going to is a dark place or, the, of course, the moment of being on the cross. And there are all kinds of examples of Christian leaders and Christian saints who've been honest enough to talk about this, right? One might think about the Victorian preacher Spurgeon who was open about these dark passages he faced. Or last century, thinking about the great Anglican C.S. Lewis, who writes about the pain that he experiences. And when you stop there for a moment and you think about all these biblical characters and all these Christian leaders and all these different people who are willing to, who basically present and are open in seeing their brokenness and their dark places, why is it that there has been historically some taboo around this topic? Why would somebody tell me this week, you're nuts to talk about it? Too personal, too hard, too whatever. I don't know. Maybe C.S. Lewis offers part of the reason for this. C.S. Lewis, um, in his Problem of Pain, says this. He says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and harder to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain only increases the burden. It's easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. And I think God builds into Scripture that He wants us to be open about this, right? I think we turn to the book of Psalms. It's such a beautiful book because it teaches us how to pray with a full range of emotions. It's got these great psalms of joy and, you know, all these different kinds of, of joyful psalms. But then it's got these psalms that are just so honest about despair and brokenness and dark places. And I think over and against this whole notion of a taboo around this topic, we get that God is teaching us how to cry out in despair and in these dark and lonely places. And it's a bit ironic in a way because the Psalms are ultimately prayers and they're prayers that in their own way call us to trust. 
But in them also God teaches us to cry out in despair when we don't even know where he is. When we are lacking in trust. It's as if God is saying, come talk to me about this. Come to this place and let me help you. You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief kind of moments. He's calling us into that place. And what I'd like to do now, just for a moment, is turn to one psalm as an example. It's the one that Jack read a moment ago, Psalm 42. And just think about some of the things that it says. It starts out with this heartfelt cry out to God about the despair that the psalmist is in. And he goes on to talk about how he's known these great places, but now he feels abandoned, right? We get this notion in verse 4 where he's talking about, I knew the days in the temple with all this joy and all this other stuff. And in verse 3, he'd already said, but now my whole life is basically a bowl of tears of despair and how it goes um, into that place, right? And what makes it worse, you know, when we, when we experience these dark places and when we experience depression, we oftentimes feel isolated. And the psalmist is saying not only that, but saying, I feel cut off from God. And it makes the taunts of the people that are mocking him, where's your God, even harder. It's a tough place and it just owns it and puts it out there. And then we get to verse nine. Verse nine says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? This idea that he, it's a heartfelt cry out to God. Where are you and why is this happening? And it's a good thing to be able to cry out to God. If anybody's ever told you there's something wrong with crying out to God in these moments, that's not right. It's not only fine, it's good. It's a healthy thing to do. And in verse 5 and verse 11, the psalmist is going to go to that question of why. And I've already said the why question is often a mystery. Why is it that this is happening? Why am I here? Why is this happening to me? Why is all of this? And the psalmist doesn't get an answer. But I think it's important to see what happens next because the psalmist in Psalm 5 comes back to really an act of the will. And he declares at an act of will a moment of, of holding on to hope even when I don't feel like holding on to it. He talks about how this um, we should put... He's pre basically, he's preaching to himself at this moment, something I do all the time. But he says, put your hope in God. He says, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's making an act of the will to, to bring to his mind, to his mental condition and saying, I may not feel it, but I know there's hope. And I don't know if you noticed in verse 9 when I read it a minute ago, even when he's complaining, he's calling God his rock. He's holding on to God as this rock in his life, even when he doesn't necessarily feel it. This act of the will. And it's a deliberate act to try to hold on to hope. We're reminded, as we started this sermon series last week on Easter, talking about the vital place of hope in our lives and holding on to that. And I want to say today that I'm really, really grateful for all of you who wrote to me this week when I requested it for help with this sermon. And I'm going to use a few of your different illustrations that you guys sent me. But I had one person write in 
who talked about being in the darkest spot of their life and having a friend who came to them and, and said to them, after every good Friday comes Easter. And it was just meant to be something to say, hold on to hope. It's going to get super dark. There's going to be something better that comes from it. And so enough on Psalm 42. Um, I think there's one more thing I want to say before I switch to talking about maybe deliberately how we, what we do with our friends. And that is to say something about the place of community. Because community, which is what the church is called to be, is super important in how we live life. And it's super important in how we live life in hard times. I want to read a passage from St. Paul, kind of a throwaway passage he puts in 2 Corinthians. This is from 2 Corinthians 7 um, in verses 4 to 6. He says this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted in every kind of way, disputes and and fears within. So he's in this dark place, and he continues on. He says, But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus. This idea that God's consolation was more community. And part of that passage is the God who consoles, recognizing that it's God who in the who always has time for us, who always wants to help us, who loves us. And God, I think, ultimately expects the church to be a main part of that as we have community and as we love on each other. And even in this time of shelter in place, there's phones, there's Zooming, there's all kinds of ways to keep community and care going, right? It matters. One of uh, you who wrote in to me this past week, who had just gone through a really hard divorce and was in a dark place, said this. Looking back, I wish I had not stayed so isolated. I lost my community, which left me feeling stranded and alone. That our community matters, right? Well, let me pivot for the final part of this sermon and just explicitly talk about How do we minister to a friend who's in these dark places? And I want to start with some don'ts, some negatives, right? Some things that that we should not do. Don't give trite platitudes to people in deep pain because it only gives them anguish. We need to come to them with gentleness and humbleness. We need to not make light of what they're experiencing. We need to not discount their feelings. We need to not blame them for what they're going through. Lots of people will say that it's not helpful if you try to compare what you've been through. Oh, uh, let me tell you about my time. I was in a dark place. Not helpful. And for many of us, certainly for me, don't try to fix it. We, We live in a society that's all about we can fix it. We can do it. That's who we are. But that's hurtful, as we said earlier, with Job's friends trying to help him. It can just be hurtful. For reasons we don't understand, God can heal but doesn't always heal. Sometimes people are left dealing with these things for different reasons. And maybe God God has his purposes in that. But But we have to just be prayerful and looking at what that is. And if we try to lean into that and fix it, we can end up just doing harm. And end up just doing hurt with what we do with it. Our question 
is how do we love people in that place? And what do we do with the positive things on this? And I think part of that, too, is letting people know they're not alone as they walk through this. Other people go through this, and we're walking through you with it. One person wrote in and said at the, at the lowest point they had, what was helpful was hearing friends say, I'm here for you. Or having another friend say, what can I do to help you? Talking to my counselor, she was t- talking about how important it is to validate the person, to recognize empathetically the pain they're in and to be able to say, I'm sorry for the pain that you're going through. To encourage, um, as we've said already, to cry out to God, maybe suggest Psalm 42. Be willing to own the pain you're going through. Somebody else um, wrote in and said on this notion, said, give up the shame and the awful faking it to hide what's happening. So there are lots of different things that way. And we think about more of the positive things. When I talked to my Christian psychiatrist friend this week, he was pretty simple. He said there are only two things you need to know to help a friend. His answers were, I mean, these are hard, but he said, help get them to a professional. And he said the second thing was ask them the question nobody wants to ask. The question of are you thinking about harming yourself? And his answer, his question, his thing on that was he said, people don't want to ask that because they feel it's awkward or they feel it's going to plant a seed. And he said, look, there have been tons of studies. And I have a counselor who specializes in this also who said there are tons of studies that people won't volunteer it, but they will answer it. And it doesn't plant a seed. But having them say it out loud can make all the difference. No, I'm not. Or yes, I am. And let's go get help or whatever it is. I think the other thing we would say that we have to say is that a lot of helping a friend in this place is not what you say, but just presence, a ministry of presence, just being with them, nothing else. We had one person who wrote in who really talked about a dark place that they were in. And um, she wrote this. She said, the best thing you can do is just be there and sit, demand nothing, no conversation, Don't ask for confidences and leave if it's too much for the person for you to even be there. At the end of the day, as we talked about last week, the best gift we can give is to try to help them find hope. And sometimes what that means is you have to carry the hope. I want to read a a little passage from an Anglican priest who suffers from depression, Reverend Mark Minnell. He says this, he says, well, if a depressed person has lost hope, the best thing a loving friend can do is to hold hope for them. Now, that doesn't mean imposing timetables for recovery. It certainly doesn't mean bludgeoning them with hope. Do not indulge in talking the language of Zion as if it makes everything rosy and lovely. It might actually mean being silent or doing something to distract them together or even just doing the dishes, being willing to do that might give all the hope that's needed since that alone speaks volumes about somebody's value and your love for them. That's the list of things that I would say are some thoughts for you as you try to help a friend. I'm going to end today's sermon with one more illustration from you guys that you gave. And this is a a uh, comment that was made that's not just about helping one friend, 
but it's about helping everybody you encounter. It's about loving every neighbor that you encounter. And this is a little bit of a longer quote that I'm going to give. And some of you in the church will know who this is. I want you to know because it's a little bit longer and a little more detailed that I've asked explicitly for permission to read this. Um, this was a person who was unemployed for 28 months looking for work and the dark passages that he went through. And this is what he said. And I think this is something we can take all of us into everyday life. He said, during the week, everyone was out working and I was not. I went to the mall, coffee shops, on walks, and to bars to try to be around people. That felt more isolating because I didn't talk to anyone, nor did anyone talk to me. I just wanted someone to ask, are you okay? Hi, how are you? But I felt invisible. This was one of the worst and most isolating feelings I've ever experienced. A simple smile or some kind of human kindness that showed someone cared about my life and really saw me is what I needed. Since waking up from my depression, I'm sure to smile and say, have a great day, to slow down and hear people, to show love, also to recognize people in pain and reach out. I ask, how are you? No, really, how are you? Depression is an evil condition. It tricks your brain. It convinces you that your depressive reality is the truth when it's not. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. Help us to love one another. Walk with one another. Help us to be a neighbor and to love when our friends and people are walking through dark places. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.